The scripture for this morning's message is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's go before the Lord in prayer again. Our Father, given what Ethan shared this morning, I am grateful for the training, the years upon years that you invested into my life. I'm grateful for all of the resources. I'm grateful for all of the professors that I had, for all the people who invested and invested and invested and invested in me. I'm grateful for pastors and other mentors who who taught me many things about you and about your word. But Father, as I stand here this morning to preach, I don't trust in my training, but I trust in your Holy Spirit. I don't trust in my preparation, but I trust in your Spirit. And so I pray that you would come now, Lord, and make your word live for us. I pray, Father, that you would touch us deeply in mind, in heart, in soul with your word. I pray that you would shape our way of life. I pray that you would give give us eyes to see the glory of Christ and to savor who you are to cherish you, to delight in you, to follow you, to preach you, to give our life and heart and soul and mind and strength to you. Lord Jesus, amaze us this morning, I pray, with who you are. And I thank you by faith for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. It was, without doubt, one of the most amazing years in the history of the world. For over 400 years, God had remained relatively silent, though he always was speaking through his word. But now the time was full, and God burst upon the scene with persuasive words and powerful actions that has literally shaped the course of history down to our day and paved the path to eternal life for everybody who would believe. It was about 6 B.C., and God was on the move. And Luke draws our attention to an aging couple who lived in central Israel in a small town in the area called Judah. Zechariah and Elizabeth were a priestly family who loved and sought and served the Lord all of the days of their lives. They were getting up in years now, 
and they had much joy in God as they thought back through their lives and all the grace of God that had been upon their lives. But they also lived with this decades-long pain of infertility. They had prayed and tried and prayed and tried and prayed and tried to have children, but God never granted that to them. And in their day, this was a particularly difficult struggle because in their culture, this was to some degree a shameful thing for Elizabeth in particular. But they loved Jesus. At least they loved the Lord their God. That would be more accurate to say. And they kept pressing on. They kept serving the Lord. They kept trusting the Lord. They kept seeking the Lord. They were truly an admirable couple. We would have loved to have known them. Zechariah served as one of the priests of Israel in, in a division called Abijah. Nine centuries before this time, King David had organized the priests of Israel. There were 38,000 of them in, in, in David's day. He organized them into 24 divisions, and Abijah was the eighth division of the 24 divisions. These divisions of priests would come to Jerusalem one after another, and they would serve the Lord and his people for about one week at a time. 900 years later, this system was still in place, and the time had come again for the the division of Abijah to come to Jerusalem and serve the Lord and his people. When the priests would arrive in Jerusalem, they would serve the Lord in a number of ways, but every evening they would send one priest into the holy place where he would trim the lamps and get them ready to burn throughout the night, and he would offer an incense offering of prayer to the Lord. And then in the morning they would send one more priest into the holy place, and he would put out the lamps and tend to the lamps, and he would offer another incense offering to the Lord. And every time a priest would offer an incense offering to the Lord, the people of Israel would gather around the temple and they would lift up their prayers to God. They would tell him their needs, their hopes, their dreams, their hurts, their wants. And so twice a day, it was really a prayer event at the temple there in Jerusalem. When you look at the number of priests who were serving in these days, as opposed to the number of opportunities there would have been for a priest to go into the holy place and serve the Lord in this way, you will see that the majority of priests would have never had the privilege of performing this service in their lifetime. There just wasn't enough opportunities as compared to the priests. So it was considered a tremendous honor, a tremendous privilege to be selected to go into the holy place, to trim the lamps, to offer the incense. And in fact, if you were a priest and you were chosen to do that, you would never be allowed to do it again in your lifetime because they needed to make space for other people to have the same privilege. So this is a once-in-a-lifetime privilege. Now, beloved, it is at the very least unlikely that Zechariah would have been chosen to perform this service at this particular time of history, but at most it might just be an outright miracle. The odds of him being chosen to perform this task at all were very high. The odds of him being chosen to perform this task at this exact moment are almost astronomical. Maybe they're even beyond calculation. For a long time, God had been relatively silent, and now he burst upon the scene with powerful actions and persuasive words, and the first thing he did was to see that this man was chosen by lot to go into the holy place on a particular day at a particular time. I hope you see this was a miracle. This is no small thing at all. It's hard enough for me to imagine. I've taken time to meditate 
pretend that I was Zechariah, what it would have felt like to walk into the holy place. I think it would have been absolutely awe-inspiring. He's an old man now. He knows so much about the temple. He's been right next to it all of his life, and now finally he has the privilege of walking into that most holy of places. He's read about it in the Bible. He's read about others' experience, and now he can see it. He can smell it. He can touch it. He can feel it. It must have been an amazing experience, and to make it all the more amazing, as he stood there tending to the lamp and offering the incense offering, right there at the right hand of the altar of God, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And that angel spoke audibly so that Zechariah could hear him and understand the speech that he was giving. This absolutely stunned Zechariah. It would have stunned any of us. It put the fear of God deep into him. But the angel calmed him. The angel uh, comforted him. And the angel prophesied and said to him, don't fear, Zechariah, because your prayers have been heard. Your wife's prayers have been heard. And even though, like Abraham and Sarah, you are old and barren, God has granted that you will have a son. And when you have a son, you must name him John. You cannot name him anything else. You must name him John. This name means the Lord has shown favor. And this man will be great in the sight of God. This man will be filled with the spirit and the power of Elijah. This man will be a prophet like a prophet you have never, ever seen in your life and have rarely even read about in all of the scriptures. You can imagine that Zechariah was totally stunned by what he had seen and heard, but he also doubted. This was difficult for him to believe. It was difficult for him to conceive how could such a great thing be, much less how could such a great thing actually come to pass. If you and I were old and advanced in years, I think we would find it hard to take in as well. But from God's point of view, Zechariah should have known better. He was an old man. He knew the Scripture backward and forward. He knew that God is faithful to the end. He knew that God can make old people have babies. He had seen God's faithfulness with his own eyes day after day through provision, through kindness, through mercy, through grace. Zechariah should have known, but he doubted, and so the angel Gabriel rebuked him and made him mute or unable to speak for a particular period of time. Somehow, Zechariah found a way to complete his service, after which he went out to the people, and they could see that something amazing had happened. He was probably glowing, he was absolutely stunned, and he couldn't speak. So obviously something happened in there, but he wasn't able to communicate to them exactly what, and so he ended up just going back home, and the people ended up going their way. And regardless of the lack of faith that Zechariah showed, God was tremendously gracious to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they did indeed conceive. Elizabeth did indeed become pregnant, and the Bible says that she secluded herself for five months. And I assume that's because she was older. It was probably a high-risk pregnancy. And if I was in her shoes, I would not want to speak about this publicly until I was sure that I was sure that I was sure that I was sure. So the Bible doesn't really say, but I think that's why Elizabeth secluded herself. Six months after this scene in the temple, that same angel Gabriel was sent from God to visit a young virgin named Mary. She lived in a no-name city. She was just a young girl, probably a middle teenager. She came from a humble family, a poor family. She was betrothed or engaged to a man named Joseph who descended from King David, so that was pretty awesome, but he was poor nonetheless. So in Joseph and Mary, you have a royal lineage but a very humble family. You have a royal lineage but you have poor people, and we're surprised to see that of all the people in Israel, God would choose to visit this woman in this town who comes from this family. 
But by the grace of God, Gabriel spoke a stunning blessing over Mary, and then he prophesied to her that she would become pregnant with a son without intercourse. And he spoke of this son in such over-the-top glowing language that it would have probably been nearly impossible for Mary to even understand, much less take in what he was saying. The boy had to be called Jesus. He could not be called anything else. He had to be called Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. And he would be great. He would be called the Son of the Most High God. He would be given the throne of his father David. He would reign as king forever and ever. And of his kingdom, there would be no end. Any young woman hearing prophecies like this about her soon-to-be son would be stunned, beloved. But any Jewish person hearing these particular words would understand that this man would not be just another great man, but that he would be the great man. They would attach those words back to all the prophecies of the Old Testament and realize that this one was going to be the fulfillment of all the purposes and promises of God. This one was going to be the long-awaited Messiah. I assume that Mary grew up going to temple. I assume that she knew the stories of old. And I assume that when she heard the words of the angel Gabriel, she was blown away because she knew that her son would be that man. I cannot imagine being Mary. Just the sense of stun that you would have at hearing something like this. Like Zechariah, she was totally in awe, but she also doubted. She, however, was not punished because I think she was young and naive. She had no way of knowing better. Like I said, she's probably 14, 15, 16 years old or something. And so in the grace of God, the angel Gabriel comforted her, explained some things to her, let her know how things were going to transpire, and then he told her that her uh, relative, Elizabeth, had also conceived and was going to bear a son because, the angel said, nothing will be impossible with God. Well, Mary must have been totally speechless, but she offered herself up to the Lord, and the angel departed from her presence. It's no surprise for us to hear that Mary was so deeply moved by what had just happened to her that she rushed to the town where her relative Elizabeth lived to go visit her. And as I've thought about this, I thought to myself, who else in the world would even believe Mary's story? If that had just happened to you, if you had just been visited by an angel and he had spoken such things to you and told you that you would become pregnant in such an unusual way, who would you run and tell that story to? How many of those people would suggest that you go visit the mental hospital? But she knew that Elizabeth would believe her because the angel had told her what happened to Elizabeth. So she ran there. And who else would know the depth of her joy but Elizabeth? This is what I think made Mary run, not walk, but run to where Elizabeth was. And when she got into her town and entered her house and greeted her relative with her words, the Bible says that just upon hearing the words, the baby inside Elizabeth's womb leapt probably for joy. And Elizabeth, it is said, was filled with the Holy Spirit of God, an amazing thing in and of itself. And being filled with the Holy Spirit of God, she spoke a blessing over Mary and said this in verse 42. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Can you imagine being Mary at that moment? Can you imagine 
that you just go to your relative to rejoice in her, with her, in the things that God has done, and it all turns back on you, and suddenly, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord is speaking such a blessing over you. Can you imagine being Mary in that moment? She was such a young woman, but God was pouring out favor, unbelievable favor. And if I was her, I think the thing that would have stunned me the most is hearing my relatives say that the baby inside of my womb was her Lord. Can you imagine that? Just unbelievable, beloved. Absolutely unbelievable. Mary, it is said, pondered these things in her heart. And so one way that we can get to know what she was pondering in her heart is to look carefully at the explosion of praise that came out of her beginning in verse 46. If you'll just look there with me. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servants. For behold, from now all generations will call me blessed. Catholics go too far, but we should call her blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring for ever. Wow. That's a teenager speaking. That's the Holy Spirit filling up the heart of a woman who had just received tremendous blessing and expressing praise to God who had given the blessing. After this most memorable explosion of praise, Mary stayed with her relatives for three months, but then for some reason she left just before John was born. Maybe it wasn't time for them to meet yet. Soon enough, John the Baptist was indeed born. And all who knew Zechariah and Elizabeth rejoiced with them because they had suffered with them decade after decade. They knew about the infertility. They had probably prayed with them. They had had, had felt the pain with them. They had been through it all with them. And now that God had joyously granted their prayers of so many decades, the people were rejoicing along with them. But when the time came, to circumcise and name the child, a problem came up because Elizabeth wanted to name the child John. He, she wanted to name the child, the Lord has shown favor. But this isn't the way they did it there. The way they did it there is you name the child after somebody in your family. Probably should have named him Zechariah or something along those lines. Somebody in the family lineage. And so they didn't want to honor the mother's wishes here and they sought the father who still couldn't speak. By now, he'd been silent for nine months. He'd figured out how to communicate, so he said, get me my tablet, and he wrote the fateful words, his name is John. His name is the Lord has shown favor. And with that, they walked in obedience to the angel. And at that very moment, please don't miss that point, at that very moment, 
Zechariah's tongue was loosed and he was able to speak. And the first thing he did was bless God. And everybody who heard it or even heard about it, the awe of God and the fear of God fell upon them. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he spoke a powerful and enduring prophecy about John, his child, and about the purposes and promises of God in and through his life. If you look with me at verse 68. Zechariah said probably in a loud voice, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, you, the Lord has shown favor. You will be called the prophets of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. How did Zechariah know what he just prophesied? How did he know that? Beloved, we take these things for granted. We've read these stories so many times we don't even see what we're seeing. It is a miracle that that man looked at his son and knew who he was. And it came by the Holy Spirit. Perhaps Zechariah himself was even surprised as he was speaking the words. The Lord was revealing his hand to his people. And John grew and became strong. And he went to live in the wilderness, I presume, because he went off to a monastery type of a place to learn how to love the Lord of his God, his God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. He went there to learn how to cherish his God and do the will of his God all the days of his life. He went there to let go of all the things of this world so that he would stare at his God face to face and never look away. John went to become a man of God by the grace of God. Sometime after he was born, another miracle happened. Augustus Caesar proclaimed that a census be taken throughout the entire Roman Empire, and the timing of this does make it a miracle. It certainly does in my mind. Because Caesar made this decree at this particular time of history, Joseph and Mary were forced to go back to Bethlehem, to the city of David, where the prophets had prophesied that the Christ would be born. If Caesar did not decree this, they would not have moved, and Jesus would not have been born where he was said to have been born. This was a miracle, beloved. Augustus Caesar was the most powerful man on the face of the earth in those days, but you know what he really was? He was a tool in the hands of God to complete his will and to fulfill his purposes. God moves the hearts of kings. Do not fear powerful nations. Do not fear powerful groups like ISIS. God is in total control, absolute control. And so in fulfillment of so many prophecies, Mary did indeed bear her son in Bethlehem, and since they were poor, they just wrapped him in some odd cloths that they could find, and they laid him in a cow trough. So we love to romanticize this moment, don't we? We love to make it so beautiful and glowing. They put him on a bunch of old rags and they stuck him in a cow trough 
Although he was infinitely rich, Jesus Christ became poor for our sakes. At that very time, the timing itself is as miraculous as what happened next. At that very time, an angel appeared to some shepherds out in a field, and they visibly saw the glowing glory of God with their own eyes. This is unbelievable. These people were not esteemed at all in their societies. Shepherds were like the minimum wage workers of their society. Nobody looked to them. Nobody would have thought to reveal big, huge news to them. And so we're blown away that God would choose people like these to reveal himself to. We're blown away that God would choose people like this to declare the birth of his most precious son. But God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Amen? He chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He puts the first last and the last first. He does whatever pleases him. And so he went out into the field to these minimum wage workers who worked a dirty, stinky, thankless job. And he revealed to them his glory through his angels. And the angels said to them, This very day a child is born to you who will be Savior, Christ, and Lord. And when the angel finished speaking, the Bible says that an entire multitude of angels appeared in their actual sight, and they heard these angels saying, perhaps even singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth, be peace among those with whom he is pleased. And with that, with that absolutely mind-blowing, stunning experience, the angels departed back into heaven, and the, sh- and the shepherds traveled to Bethlehem, where in this bustling, crazy, overflowing city, they were able, by the grace of God, to find Jesus and his family. And when they arrived there, they told everybody what had just happened to them out in the field, and everybody was stunned, without speech, blown away, in awe of what God was doing. They were absolutely mind-blown at the grace of God that was exploding upon the scene. And Mary in particular, it says, treasured these things up in her heart, and she pondered the will and the ways of God. When the time came to circumcise their son, they named him Jesus in, in obedience to the angel. They named him Yahweh Saves. And then they traveled to Jerusalem to do all that God had commanded through the law of Moses. And while they're in Jerusalem, as if everything that just happened wasn't enough, God sends them two more signs to point to this son and say, this is no normal boy. To point to this son and say, he indeed is the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. First of all, in those days there was an old man named Simeon. He was a lover of God for all the decades of his life. And he had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Lord's Christ before he breathed his last and died. What an amazing promise. What an amazing God that would make a promise like that. When the time was right, Simeon was moved by the Holy Spirit to go into the temple complex. And it just so happens, as though it's some kind of coincidence or accident, coincidence or accident, it just so happens That when he enters into the temple, there's Joseph and Mary with their newborn baby. He runs right into them. And the Bible says that when his eyes landed upon Jesus, his heart was filled with the Spirit, and he took this young man up into his arms, and he spoke a blessing over him. You can see it in chapter 2, verse 29. Simeon said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation. How would you feel if someone said that about your child? That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Joseph and Mary are stunned, but Simeon isn't done. He looks at Mary and says in verse 34, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And as if this wasn't enough, as if God hadn't gone over the top of the top of the top to show them that their child was unusual, he sent one more person, a prophetess named Anna. Anna had been widowed in her early 20s. And in those days, a widow could choose to go to the temple in Jerusalem and offer her life in service to the Lord. And in exchange, they would give her a place to stay and food to eat all the days of her life. That's what Anna chose to do. She chose not to remarry, but to marry herself to the Lord. And for 60 years, this woman sat in the temple complex fasting and praying and seeking the Lord her God. And at the very hour when Simeon had blessed this child, Anna somehow by the Spirit knew to go up to this family as well. And the Bible simply says that she gave thanks and began speaking about the child to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. I assume that she was speaking prophecy over him. I assume that she was speaking blessing over him. So there they are in the temple with this miracle child and a great old man and a great old woman come and speak blessings and honor upon their son. And beloved, I just cannot imagine what it was like to be Joseph and Mary in those days. Absolutely stunning. This long string of events that we've just recounted took place in one year of time. Can you imagine going through all that in one year? God had been relatively silent, except that he's always speaking through his word for over 400 years. And then came one of the most amazing years in the history of the world. Unbelievable. And Joseph and Mary were right there, recipients of the unbelievable, overflowing grace of God in Christ. Twelve years later, one little scene they go back to the temple. They were a faithful, obedient family. So every year they went down to, to observe the Passover. This particular year was a little bit different because Jesus has now come of age. He's 12 years old. And so instead of just hanging out with the family, he goes over to the teachers of Israel and he begins to learn from them and he begins to question them. And I don't think probably anybody knew who Jesus really was. Who knows, maybe somebody by the Spirit of God got insight into who this young man's identity was or what his identity was, but probably they didn't. But they all knew that he was going to be something great because the Bible says everybody was absolutely impressed with this guy, 12 years old, asking such penetrating, insightful questions that made everybody know the Spirit of God is inside of him. They were impressed with him, 12 years old. The family finishes all of their duties, honors the Lord, worships the Lord, walks in love with each other. The time comes to go. They leave on to go back to Nazareth, and they realize as they're traveling down the road that Jesus is not with them. So they turn around, they go back to Jerusalem, and to my mind, it's very significant that they found him on the third day. That number's coming up all the time. They found him on the third day, and when they found him, they found him seeking his father. When they found him, they found him doing his father's will. 
when they found him, they found him delighting in his father's word and asking questions and pressing more and more and more into the things of the kingdom of God. This was a seeker of God at 12 years old. Big time. Mary, though, wasn't very happy with her 12-year-old, you can imagine. So she asked him a question that was a kind of rebuke. We're not surprised by that, but we're probably surprised by Jesus' response. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I needed to be, I had to be, I must be inside my father's house? Remember, I had a friend in a church years and years ago when I first came to Christ, and she used to say, wow, Jesus was being really sassy there. I don't know what to do with that because you have the Son of God being sassy to his mother. But he was not being sassy here. What I want to help us see is that Jesus, at the ripe old age of 12, was boldly and authoritatively speaking about his true identity already. He was aware through reading the Scripture and through the ministry of the Spirit of who he was. And so Mary didn't understand. I don't think anybody understood. But it says Mary treasured these things up in her heart. She pondered them day by day. Remember, 12 years earlier, all those miracles had happened right there in the temple complex. At least a lot of them had happened in the temple complex. So now, 12 years later, another kind of confusing event. And I think Mary's starting to put things together. And they begin to worship the Lord. They begin to seek the Lord as they watch him grow in wisdom and stature and have the favor of the Lord upon him. Now, Beloved, we know from other parts of Scripture and from church history that Mary was present and well-known among the early church. So she wasn't just somebody that people heard stories about. A lot of people in the early church actually knew Mary. I have no doubt in my mind. Well, let me say I have a little doubt in my mind, but not much. That Luke actually personally interviewed Mary and heard these stories from her mouth. I, I don't doubt at all that Luke also sought out Joseph, Elizabeth, Zechariah, the, the shepherds, anybody else who was there who he could find and interviewed them personally, if he possibly could. And I have no doubt whatsoever that if he wasn't able to find these people, that he got as close to the source as he possibly could. Luke is not telling us here a bunch of fairy tales. Luke is telling us here a related series of stories that he both heard and then verified. You remember from last week, Luke was a researcher, He was a doctor. He was an intellectual. He was a thinker. He was a man who did his homework. He was a man who vetted his his sources and verified his stories. And he is telling us true things that are indeed miraculous. He is essentially allowing eight people, one group of people, one angel, one group of angels, and the Holy Spirit himself to stand before us this morning and testify to the fact that Jesus Christ is the one. And he has vetted his stories, beloved. He means business here. These are not fairy tales. These are true things that happened. And I think they're to lead us to believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ. This is the place where Luke is trying to get us to come even by the second chapter of his book. In the first two chapters alone, Luke presents us with seven claims about Jesus. He presents us with 23 confirming signs that these claims are true. And then he leads us to one stunning conclusion. And so as we draw our time to a close together today, what I want to do is just recount all that for you. You won't be able to write any of this down, but I did put it in an insert in your bulletin. It's called Seven Claims, 23 Confirmations, One Conclusion. You can read along or just listen. I would probably suggest that you just listen. I just want to recount all of this for you again so that you feel the force of what Luke is trying to do. 
He is not simply telling us stories. He's testifying that Jesus is the Christ. And I pray that we'll have ears to hear. Here are the claims. Number one, Jesus had to be named Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, because he has been sent by God to be the Savior of the world, Luke one thirty one. Two, Jesus is so great as to be called the Son of the Most High, one thirty two. Number three, God the Father has given to Jesus the throne of his father David in fulfillment of many promises made over centuries of time, Luke one thirty two. Number four, as the great heir of the throne of David, Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end, 133. Number five, Jesus is the horn of salvation sent to save God's people near and far, Luke 169. Number six, Jesus is the light shining into the darkness, bringing salvation to the Gentile, Gentiles and glory to Israel, 179 and 2, 31 through 32. And then finally, number seven, Jesus is Savior, Christ, and Lord. These are the claims that specific people made with specific words. And now here are 23 confirming signs that these claims are true. Imagine that you're Mary or Joseph, and you're writing all of this in your journal. And you're saying to the Lord, maybe the title is, this has been an amazing year. And you're just recounting, Lord, this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened, and that happened. And if this was you, what would you conclude about Jesus? Number one, out of tens of thousands of priests, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple to offer incense and prayer at this particular time of history. Number two, the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah in the holy place. Number three, the angel Gabriel predicted the birth of John before the fact Number four, the angel Gabriel commanded Zechariah and Elizabeth to name their son John, or the Lord has shown favor, instead of a more traditional family name. Number five, Zechariah was made mute at a very particular time, and he was healed from his muteness at a very particular time. Number six, Elizabeth, though old and barren, conceived and bore a son. Seven, the angel Gabriel appeared to the Virgin Mary. Eight, the angel Gabriel predicted the virgin birth of Jesus before the fact. Nine, the angel Gabriel commanded Joseph and Mary to name their son Jesus, or Yahweh saves, instead of a more traditional family name. Ten, Mary learned about what had happened to Elizabeth through the revelatory speech of the angel Gabriel. Eleven, Mary conceived and bore a son without having sexual relations. Twelve, Upon hearing Mary's voice, Elizabeth's child leaped in her womb. Thirteen, Elizabeth identified Mary's child still in utero as her own Lord. Fourteen, Zechariah prophesied by the power of the Holy Spirit and identified Jesus as the horn of salvation and the Lord. Fifteen, Caesar Augustus, Augustus decreed a census which forced Joseph and Mary to visit Bethlehem where Jesus was born in fulfillment of prophecy. 16, an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds and announced the birth of Christ. 17, a multitude of angels appeared to the shepherds, praising God and exalting Jesus. 18, Simeon was led by the Spirit into the temple complex at the precise time Joseph, Mary, and Jesus were there in fulfillment of the Lord's promise to him. 19, Simeon blessed God and prophesied over Jesus, saying that he was God's salvation for Jews and Gentiles alike. Twenty, 
The prophetess Anna approached Joseph, Mary, and Jesus in the same hour Simeon had blessed him to give thanks to God and testify about Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 21, the favor of God was upon Jesus from his infancy. 22, as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus was unusually focused on the things of God and impressive in the sight of Israel's teachers. He was no normal boy. 23, Five people were said to be filled with or otherwise moved by the Holy Spirit. John, Mary, Elizabeth, Zechariah, and Simeon. I want to remind you that 21 of those 23 things transpired within one year of time. That that many things would happen is probably beyond odds. That all of that would happen in such a short period of time, back to 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 back, is beyond calculation. God is pointing to this one and saying, he is the one. And to my mind, that is the only and inescapable conclusion that we can draw, namely this. Jesus is the chosen one of God sent to save and rule forever. Everything Luke has shared is drawing us to this point, driving us to this point. Jesus is the chosen one of God sent to save and rule forever. And beloved, what are we to do but to fall on our knees and worship this one? I have felt a sense of awe in my soul all week long. I did my initial study for this Sunday afternoon and Monday last week, and I have just been stunned at this one named Jesus. And I think that this is partly what Luke wants us to do. He wants us to feel the awe that they felt. So what else are we to do but to bow down and feel awe in him and believe in him and cling to him and love him and listen to him and follow him and trust in him all the days of our lives? What are we to do but to preach this man to everyone we can all the days of our lives? So if you believe... I want to ask you to take that insert at some time this day or this week and to think carefully about all the claims. Think carefully about all the confirming signs and drive that one conclusion deep into your soul and learn to love the Lord your God with all of your soul and heart and mind and strength all the more. And if you don't believe today, I want to encourage you to take that handout Think about these claims. Think about these confirming signs and ask God, who is this man? Who was this child? What does he mean for my life? If Jesus is who the Bible claims he is, then friend, he has everything to do with your life and you must reckon with this man. So think about him. If you're not ready to believe today, that's okay, but think about him. Meditate upon him. Ask God to show you his true identity. And if you want to talk about that, we are open to talking, even if you don't agree. But all of us, believing or unbelieving, Let us look to this man, be in awe of this man, meditate upon this man, deal with this man. Let's pray that God would help us with that now. Our Father, I am uh, breathtaken by the revelation we've seen in just the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory of Christ, that you would open our hearts to feel the warmth of the glory of Christ, and that you would bend our wills so that we would live every day for the glory of Christ. We love you, Jesus. We look to you, Jesus, and we rise to sing your praise now. And it is in your name that we pray and praise. Amen.